Good afternoon, Mayor Kelman and Council Member Sobieski. This meeting has been held pursuant to Government Code Section 54953E. And in light of the declared state of emergency, the special meeting of the Finance Committee meeting for May 12, 2022, will be conducted telephonically through Zoom and broadcast live on the city's website. Wonderful, thank you very much. Uh, welcome everybody, Special Finance Committee meeting Thursday, May 12th, uh, one o'clock. Myself and Councilmember Sobieski both in attendance. Um, we'll go ahead and look for any public comment items not on the agenda. So um, Serge, do we have any members of the public? Madam Mayor, um, I do not see any members of the public in this meeting at this time. Okay, great. Then we will uh, go ahead and close public comment, move to the consent calendar. We have three items on consent, uh, receive and file the updated Bank of America report. We have the city of Sausalito charge of a uh, chart of account char changes, excuse me, that was a tongue twister, and the Q3 treasurer staff report. Councilmember Sobieski, do you wanna Keep this on consent. You know, I read the finance, the Bank of America report. I don't know if we need to pull it off consent. I just did have a question or just is the, do we need to take any action to endorse the recommendation to establish an enterprise fund or is staff looking for that? Or are they just saying as per their practice with other properties like the Spinnaker and MLK and Old City Hall that that's just what they're gonna do? Hi, I, I think uh, we just need your uh, approval to um, reclass um, the fund from general fund, from debt service fund to enterprise fund to better serve uh, BFA fund. So can we do that with it on consent or just as a matter of course, or Mary, do you want to pull back from? I think we probably, they need our approval, so we'll have to give a direction, um, but if there's no discussion on it, than uh, by adopting consent counter, it is so moved. So, okay. you don't have to. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, thanks Vivian. Okay, then we'll move on to new business. Um, we have three items. Item C1, discussion and direction on pension obligation bonds. So I'll hand over to our city manager. Thank you, uh, Mayor Kelman and uh, Councilmember Sobieski. Um, I'm glad that this meeting is being recorded uh, for the public to view. Uh, given the uh, emergency or the specialness and the agenda setting of it. Uh, I want to talk about um, pensions and talk about our team. Uh, as you know, um, we've been talking a lot about our pension obligations, which are part and parcel to our budget uh, challenges that we face in Sasu at this time. And so uh, just to kind of go through some high level information, as you know, uh, when we receive information as it relates to our unfunded liability, accrued liability, we're in the neighborhood of $30 million that uh, is out there. Uh, and But that's to say that 70% of our pension obligation is funded. There's 30 million in excess of that. So that $30 million uh, and the payments uh, that we have to make to honor the commitments that are legal to our past retirees and that come from them and from future retirees is really, really uh, what we're struggling with. And so, in that regard, in um, June, our former uh, finance director suggested that pension obligation bonds might be uh, some way to provide some relief. And, uh, and that was on the basis of, you know, the historically low interest rates that were in, present at that time. Uh, the city council wanted more information 
which was you know some type of um, uh, report on an actuarial basis. Uh, we contracted with Bartell and Associates to do that. Uh, they provided that report on the 26th of April. It's attached. And in parallel to that, uh, we talked about the need to bring together a legal and financial team and the, kind of, the council approved uh, that as well in January. Uh, so the um, RFP request for proposals was sent out for financial advisory services. Uh, we had two responses, Sperry and uh, NHA advisors, and, and the recommendation is to go with NHA advisors. We're with us today and we're in the process of executing a contract under city manager authority. Uh, we just have to dot some I's and cross some T's, so I'll introduce uh, the principal there. And then uh, the Sausalito Finance Authority, which was formed uh, in the mid 2013 14 timeframe, uh, has a legal counsel, and that is Brian Quint, who is with us as well. So, our financial team, our legal team is here. Uh, we just need to finalize our agreement with NHA, which we will do shortly uh, under city manager authority because uh, expediency is really important right now. Uh, and talking about pension obligation bonds. Uh, given uh, some of the past um, experiences the cities have had with them across the country, uh, there's been you know a, a fundamental um, belief that they are complex. Uh, that you know if you do them, you need to go into them eyes wide open, and so that's what we were trying to do here. So when Bartell and Associates looked at the number of pension obligation bonds that have been issued in the last couple of years, uh, the rise was significant. A lot of that has to do with interest rates and pension costs that keep rising. Uh, and they gave us what uh, they termed a 65 to 75% probability that the pension obligation bond issue would bear some financial benefit to the city of Sausalito. So um, one of the things that you know um, we've talked about is as we are uh, um, trying to involve ourselves at the state and you know and being behind the curve and interest rates rising, uh, what are the options that the city could have if they do decide to issue pension obligation bonds uh, to take advantage of a lower interest rate, not what it was a year ago, but lower interest rates, and does that make sense for the city? And you know how you do that um, is really important. So that's where your financial advisor comes on. The legal side of it and how you do that is how uh, your legal advisor or your legal counsel comes on. And so today uh, I'd like to introduce um, Brian, and Brian can say a few words about his firm and his experience, and then. Uh, Craig uh, from NHA Advisors, and we can say a little bit about his firm and, and their experience, and then uh, they can say a few words about pension obligation bonds as they've been working on them, work on them, and will work on them, and answer questions that you or the public may have. Great. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Brian, welcome. I've seen your name many times, but now I finally get to hear from you. Yes, hi. Good afternoon, everybody, um, and thank you, Chris. Uh, yes, I, uh, Brian Quint, and I've been working with the city for a number of years on several different projects over the years. Um, my firm, Quinton Timmig, is just celebrating its 25th anniversary. Uh, although the, the last two years seems like we can't count them, but um, we are a municipal bond firm. We, we Our only work relates to the issuance of debt of municipalities. Uh, and so that has been my uh, experience. I've been doing this for almost 42 years. and. Uh, Lately, uh, as Chris indicated, there's been a, quite a few of the pension obligation bond issues that have been done throughout the state. I, I think more than probably 50 of them in the last four or five years. Um, and as Chris indicated, this is an opportunity for cities uh, that have pension uh, 
UAL unfunded liability obligations to PERS, which they're paying at the PERS imputed rate. So as long as you don't fund the, 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 um, your pension obligation with PERS, they're going to charge you uh, a, a kind of a fee or a rate against that unfunded liability. Um, currently, that is 6.8%. And the idea of the pension obligation bonds is if we can borrow money in the in the marketplace, either a public offering, and some have been done as a private placement on a private placement basis, and can get an interest rate uh, that is lower than the uh, imputed rate that you're paying PERS, is it just has a financial benefit of annually allowing you to pay less uh, than you have to pay PERS. Once we issue the uh, the pension obligation bonds, the proceeds are actually paid to PERS and it extinguishes your unfunded liability. So they no longer will charge you that interest rate because there is no unfunded uh, liability. That may change over year, over the years going forward, but at that point in time, you pay off the, the unfunded and the, in, the interest rate then becomes the rate on the bonds. Um, the, the traditional way of issuing uh, pension obligation bonds is actually an issuance of a bond uh, where the, the, the general fund of the city would be the obligor um, on the, uh, uh, for the payment of the debt service on the bonds. And this is, um, we satisfy the, the, um, the, what is normally the constitutional debt limitation that says that you can't enter into a long-term obligation without a two-thirds approving vote of the electorate of the city. And there's several exceptions to, the, to this constitutional limitation one is a lease exception. The city's done some lease financing in the past, uh, where if you if you structure the transaction as a lease, certain with certain parameters, it does not violate the constitution. The other one is uh, a, a, a enterprise fund or a special fund security, and we've done that in the past with the city on the sewer uh, sewer financings, where the obligation is um, limited to a special um, identified fund. And then the third normal exception to the constitutional debt limitation is what we call an obligation imposed by law. And we are issuing pension bonds based on that concept that your obligation to PERS is an obligation imposed by law and therefore we can issue these bonds on a long-term basis without an election. Now, unfortunately, there's no specific uh, provision in the California code that says a pension obligation bond is in fact it satisfies this, the, the uh, obligation imposed by law. So each and every pension bond that is issued and that has been issued in California has required a, a, a superior court validation process. And this means we, we create a, a, a lawsuit that the city will, um, will bring. We, all of the potential uh, people in the city or anybody interested persons are the defendants. And we make an, a, um, an argument as to why this satisfies the uh, exception to the constitutional debt limitation. And in every single case that I know about, the court approves the, uh, the judgment that locks in from a legal standpoint, the validity of the transaction. And we go ahead and that protects the city uh, going forward on, on that basis. Unfortunately, um, this, as I said, there's no state law in this regard. So we have to go through this each and every time. I've uh, actually issued several of, uh, of these validation proceedings in uh, Marin County for other 
municipalities. And as I said, even during the pandemic, when we were going to court uh, vote, uh, via Zoom, uh, these all get approved because there's never an answer and we get a default judgment and uh, we just move forward. Um, there are some, um, now that does take some time. The validation process generally takes about three months, um, even if everything goes exactly perfectly well and it rarely does, but it takes about three months and there is an alternative way of doing a pension obligation uh, financing and that is we, we overlay it with a lease financing. And if we can do a lease financing, unfortunately that requires identification of a unencumbered um, asset of the city. Um, and in the case of Sausalito, if we were to do this, we would need to identify $30 million of unencumbered assets. Now, of course, you're not, we're not mortgaging the building, we're just using it in, in a lease, but nonetheless, that would be, um, be a requirement. The benefit of doing the uh, the lease structure is it's much faster. We would we wouldn't have the three month uh, lag that is required with the validation, but the validation option uh, uh, avoids the necessity of identifying property and, and including that in the lease financing. I don't want to get too into the weeds here, um, but either way works. And like I said, we've had success in Marin County with uh, the validation process and issuing pension obligation bonds. So why don't I just stop there for a second and see if there's any particular questions, uh, legal questions that I can answer. And then uh, I can let Craig talk a little bit about the financial side. Yeah, Brian, thank you. Uh, I do have a couple of questions. Um, so the first is, what is the cost associated with the Superior Court validation process? Well, um, I, I'm happy to say that other firms um, are charging additional uh, fees for the validation process. We don't do that. Our fee uh, for the bond issue would be included in the validation process, and so we would not charge extras for that. We would just charge the uh, our fee based on the issuance of the bonds. Okay, I'll have a question for you later about the, your fee structure, um, but for, for now, uh, when you overlay with lease financing, you said it's a, a faster process. How much faster? Instead of 90 days, we could probably do it in half as much, half, half the time. And can you, like, when you um, agree to, you know, refinance your home, can you lock in a rate earlier and then? Oh, yeah, it's exactly the same. The, bond, the issuance of the bonds, you're doing the lease financing is exactly the same. You go to the marketplace, you get, you'd identify either we could do it on a competitive basis or a negotiated basis once we get a, proposal, we lock in the rates and, the, and and it's locked in just like any other bond issue. Either either transaction, we're now we're talking about form over substance, but once the, the issue is sold, the rate's locked in. Okay, so you could lock in the rate with just the validation process as well? Although the validation process doesn't issue, doesn't sell the bonds. The okay, validation, so I'm sorry, maybe I misunderstood the question. The, all the validation process does is it gives us the ability to go ahead and then issue the bonds. Okay. So we would we go through the validation process we get a judgment there's a 30-day appeal period and then at that point in time we go into the market and we would then um, look for you know the the, um, the sale of the bonds that so we would so that's part of the 90-day um, process like i said if we did the lease financing we get in the market that, that much sooner okay i got one more question for you so um, when you describe lease financing and, and using the technical terms, it sounds quite innocuous. But when you when you dig in and use a sort of an anecdote, um, one might say that you're uh, mortgaging off, let's say, our, our parks, 
um, that we just put a lot of money into uh, to finance our long-term debt obligation. Um, and I think uh, we might have a lot uh, to answer to, uh, should we be doing that? Um, is that essentially how it might work if you no. were to use? Well, technically, first of all, there's no mortgage. You, you would not, there's never gonna be a, um, a, a situation where you, you'd lose the um, ownership of the asset. We use the asset in the lease okay. transaction. It's a, we call it a lease leaseback transaction. And in the event of a failure of the city to make the payments, the rent, there's basically two remedies. One remedy is a, a re-letting of the property to somebody else in order to ensure that the payments are made. Um, I can tell you that in 42 years of doing this, and, and Craig can maybe back me up, I've never ever seen the situation where that re-letting option was used in a default situation. First of all, there's, you know, defaults are far and, and uh, far in between and very few of them that I've ever seen. Normally, if there was ever a, um, a failure to make a payment, there would just be a lawsuit to compel payment. You're never going to lose uh, ownership of the, of the asset. It just, it just doesn't happen. It's kind of a, a kind of a, a phantom remedy, but it's what's built into a lease transaction. It, it can be it could be parks or buildings, but not streets, right? Well, it, that's a great question. Um, a lot of the cities just don't have, let, let's let's use the $30 million as, a, as your $30 million as an example. Um, I don't know, I believe the police building and the fire station are unencumbered and I don't remember what those are worth, but let's say they're not worth 30 million in the aggregate. Um, and let's say you don't have enough assets, unencumbered assets to aggregate the 30. What a lot of cities are doing is they are in fact using their streets as the asset and they're using the streets as the um, the lease lease back and as you can tell you know a re-letting remedy against streets is just not it's not possible so that would not be even a, a function of that transaction a number of cities are using streets particularly in those situations where they have um, large needs um, we've seen hundred million dollar a pension bonds for cities that have hundred million dollar or two hundred million dollars of UAL, and clearly they don't have those kinds of assets. And we they've gone uh, to the street option. It is something that we are seeing um, uh, more frequently because of the size of these issues and because of the lack of assets by the cities. Uh, so streets are becoming a um, an alternative when you have no other choice. So yeah, and sorry to keep asking the same question. I, just, we, we had a, an interviewed, um, during the interviews for, for the consultant for this, uh, it, I, I believe, and I'm looking at my notes here, we had a conversation where it was characterized that the idea is that in the event, under a lease revenue bond, is the idea that in the event the sausage defaults, investors are essentially able to acquire ownership of the item that you borrowed against. And you're telling me, that that in that meeting we were told that's that is actually the practical effect you're telling me that is not the practical effect no not in the okay the, there's two kinds of leases in california and i'm not sure exactly who was providing this information to you but in california we call this an abatement lease and this means that as long as you have beneficial use and possession of the asset that's being leased you have an obligation to make a payment and if you don't pay you you get, can get sued to compel the payment. Now there's another kind of lease that is more prevalent everywhere else in the country, but not in California, and it's called an appropriation lease. 
and an appropriation lease, if you don't appropriate the payment, the, 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 it can be taken away from you. But that's not the way we do leases in California. And you would, uh, the way that we structure these leases, you would never, ever lose title to the property. So is that because there's a differentiation in asset classes that make it more defensible? The, no, it's just the way that it's a structuring of the lease. These abatement leases do not allow at the, the, the taking away of the, 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 the title to the property. It's just not the way they structure. The remedy is not foreclosure. The remedy is reletting. And depending on the asset, the likelihood of reletting becomes less likely depending on how critical it is to the, to the operation of, of the city. Uh, a, a, a fire station is not very well um, reletable to anybody else other than a municipality. So the reletting remedy in that case becomes moot. Okay. Thank, thank also, you. Also, park, parks, for example, generally have restrictions on uses as parks. So you can't, you know, that reletting remedy for a park also is a kind of a moot uh, situation where that that would not be likely. And then, like I said, the remedy, and again, we don't, haven't seen very many defaults, to be honest with you. Um, the remedy would then be sue the city and compel the payment because as soon as, as long as you have a, a, you have beneficial use and occupancy of the asset, be it a building or a park or whatever it is, you have a legal obligation to pay. You can't not pay. The only time that you would not be obligated to pay, and that's why we call these abatement leases, is that your obligation to pay abates if you no longer have beneficial use and possession of the property. And that would occur um, in really only two situations. One where there was a casualty loss of the, let's say you use the building as the, as the asset and the building burned down. Obviously you no longer have beneficial use and possession of the asset and you technically would not have an obligation to pay but in those scenarios, the marketplace understands that there's a void there. And so we are required to, to obtain a, a casualty insurance to rebuild the asset. We have a thing called a rental interruption insurance because we know that if, you, if the building burned down, in my example, it's going to take two years to build, possibly up to two years to rebuild it. So there's a requirement that there's rental interruption insurance that pays the lease payments during that reconstruction period. And then the only other um, situation where you might lose beneficial use and possession is if there's a title defect, um, which is very, very rare regarding uh, assets that are owned by cities, but we are required to obtain title insurance. So that if the true and correct owner came along and said, city of Sausalito, get off my property, which you no longer would have beneficial use and in, uh, in possession of, we then go to the title company, we get them to pay because they are insured the type, they insure the lease, they, excuse me, they insure the fee title that the city has at the outset. Okay, thank, thank you, Brian. Lots to think about there. Um, Councilor Sobieski, anything to add? Thank you, Mayor, yeah. Um, so, uh, Brian, just picking up on the Mayor's questions um, there at the end, the uh, purpose of doing this with in this lease structure is only to shorten the window to close a transaction? There's one other situation that you, we need to alert you to, and that is that in some, okay, as I indicated, there's been about 50 of these deals done in the last five years. I, I may be off by a year or two, I might be off by a few of the transactions. In a very, very few scenarios, 
um, the Jarvis people have come in and they have brought a, they, they've attempted to, to stop the transactions because the Jarvis people have taken the position that the pension obligation bonds are not obligations imposed by law. They require an election of the, 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 the electorate. And in those scenarios, there's been, Craig may know more than I, but maybe a half a dozen of the 50 um, where Jarvis has come in they, they don't actually, in, in most cases, they're not actually um, answering the validation proceedings, but they're sending a letter to the city saying, we don't think you should do this and, you know, we'll fight you. And in those scenarios, those cities have, they've dropped the validation pension obligation um, alternative and they've switched to the lease financing. So that's another reason why you might do that other than merely the time savings because you don't want to fight um, fight with Jarvis. Now I can tell you that we really don't know why or where they've decided to to, to step in and, and, and raise Kane, if you will. The only thing that we can think of is that if they're in those scenarios that we know about, either there is a very, um, there is a council member that is very, very anti-pension bonds. Um, and they call Jarvis and they say, you know, stick your nose in this thing to put a halt, a halt to it. Um, and I think Al city of Alameda is the most recent scenario where there was a very vocal council member who was so against this that Jarvis and even a local uh, uh, association was brought in. Or there's somebody in the community that is a member of the Jarvis organization and then they that they raise, raise it. But like I said, there's been very few of these. In a couple of instances where that has happened, the cities have pulled the plug on the validation process and they've just decided to go the, the lease route. Right, but you could do the former and save the lease to the latter uh, circumstance if you so chose, right? The main question is this lease structure doesn't change the economics uh, at all. No. And that's why Maybe. That's why I said it was form over substance, which way yeah, you go. The, the ultimate result Perfect. is that your debt service, re, you reduce your debt service uh, to what you're, from what you're paying to PERS for the, instead to the bond issue. So primarily that's that there's no economic benefit because it's not a uh, appropriation lease in the event of default. So there isn't that kind of security there. I'm just curious now, since you hadn't thought to ask this question, but if it was an appropriation lease, if you did... Um, appropriate uh, some acre of property here in town that someone could seize um, if we didn't pay off our debt, then would we get substantially better financial terms in the marketplace? You're not gonna, you, the, the California market is not gonna accept anything other than an abatement lease because it's much more, much more secure. You cannot walk away from an abatement lease. You can walk away from an appropriation lease if you're willing to give up the asset. You're mostly going to see um, appropriation leases and where I see them in California, and I try to talk people out of it, you know, where there's a leasing company that's coming out of the East Coast somewhere and they're leasing you a fire truck or some kind of piece of equipment where, you know, reclaiming the asset might make sense. But in California, you, I don't think you could sell that to the marketplace other than the debatement lease. It's seen as a far, far stronger security. Thanks. I, I get it now. So thank you for explaining that. So the um, the unfunded liability interest rate that CalPERS charges is a 6.8% currently. 
is that going to change in the face of, well, the market losses recently due to the stock market decline or some sort of legislative change or a reaction to the interest uh, to the inflation rate? I, I'm going to let Craig talk about that, but that the, the rate was recently uh, reduced. It was, I think it was at something like seven and a quarter and then it went to seven and now it's 6.8. It's a function of their investment return, which is very substantial last year and expects to be very yeah, unsubstantial this year. But I, I saw that in the Barclays presentation, but I was just curious. Yeah, yeah but I think, we, I think Craig can answer that. Maybe we can have him talk now or you can wait till he gives his- uh, Maybe you can answer it with this follow-up question at the same time, which is just what is the marketplace rate, interest rate currently for these POVs? Well, again, it, as uh, Chris indicated at the beginning of the, trend of the, the conversation, rates have, have, rate, have risen um, substantially in the last few months, which is a, a function of um, inflation and it's a function of the war in Ukraine and we've seen substantial increases. So I think, you know, you can probably at the moment, and again, Craig can get into greater detail, I think that the, you could borrow money in the, in the um, municipal market now. And oh, by the way, these are taxable obligations as opposed to tax exempt obligations. Um, I think you can assume you're going to be in the 5% range. All right, so you're talking about arbitraging maybe 180 basis points? Well, that's the question, whether, you, whether that's worth your, your effort to save, uh, you know, 180 basis points versus, um, you know, a, a year ago, you know, you might have been able to borrow at 35 or 4%. So that's part of the, the, the determination, you know, save, better to save than not save money or don't save money. That's something that you got to decide and, you know, to reduce your debt service by a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year, it might still be valuable to you. Uh, well, it might, it's just that risk uh, that the other part of the risk is what Barlow's talked about. The, um, they put it in the favorable terms, six, 65 to 75% chance it'll pay off, which means there's a 30 to 35% chance that it won't pay off. So I, how does it not pay off? Is it when the, I presume it's when CalPERS changes its rate or is it more that it doesn't pay off because in the retrospective sense that you put the money into CalPERS and they happen to have a portfolio decrease at that time. And so you would have been better off putting that money in later. In which I think sense it's the, again, I'm gonna, I leave the financial stuff to the financial guy, but I think you're right. And I think it is a function of what CalPERS is going to do in the future. And okay, that's cool. what we don't know. And I think that Bartel, when they do that, excuse me, that analysis, you know, that's part of their analysis of what PERS might or might not do going forward. I mean, clearly this is, to me, what needs to be pulled apart with some clarity. Yeah. And you mind if I, I add to that? Yeah, there's two corollaries. So to pick up Ian's last point, I think, um, you know, if the city proceeds with a, a POB, it has to be well explained. And I think, you know, there's sort of three scenarios, right? The scenario one, CalPERS, the future investment returns are below their target. Scenario two, they're above their target. Um, and scenario three is they actually achieve their target, right? And and so how do we weigh those? I, I'd like to see that, that analysis that we can clearly explain that, right? Because if they're below their target or above their target, um, pardon me, if they're below their target or they achieve their target, then the city is better off, right? Because then CalPERS is charging, what, 6.7% interest on the UAL, and then the city can finance the UAL at a much lower rate. Um, but if they're above their target, 
uh, then I think it's sort of questionable. And so I think that's kind of gets to some of the questions that, that Ian is asking. Um, so I think we, we do want to hear, and I don't know, Craig, if you have that analysis to discuss with us or something that can come down the, the road and then kind of related as a, as a full sort of transparency is, I mean, my understanding is that um, there's some talk that POVs contributed to the Stockton and San Bernardino and perhaps other bankruptcies. Um, I'd like to understand that better as well. Yeah, and you're on. Uh, yeah. And not to pile on, but just the, a related question is: we're talking about essentially making a payment to Calpers, and we're doing it from floating a bond. And related to that is, you talked about assets. The city of Sausalito might, we don't know, but it seems possibly sit on a lot of real estate assets. And I would love to explore the scenario of paying into our Calpers unfunded liability by disposing of or somehow otherwise encumbering some of our assets as an alternative to floating a bond, which um, we're carrying the asset potentially for free. It's fully titled. Um, I'd love to explore that possibility. I agree with that. And let me pile on one more, one more, which is that in 2007, city council looked at POBs, decided not to pursue that. We'll want to know why, because back then, the obligation was much lower. Um, the answer is, I mean, if you have cash um, that you can uh, you can send to PERS um, to, to satisfy UA, your UAL, obviously that would be the ideal because then you would not only be extinguishing the UAL, but you would not be having a, a, a you know a, a, a complementary uh, debt service payment obligation. But you know that's a question of whether or not you've got assets that you can sell off for cash and whether you want to do that. Um, that may not be, you know, that's not for me to judge. That's for obviously the city council um, to determine whether or not that's a prudent thing to do. Yeah, I, I think the financial inquiry is um, the devil's, um, I shouldn't say the devil's in the details, rather understanding the scale of what we're talking about kind of would help to have some numbers. So we have a $28 million UAL. Last year, it was something like 32. So we benefited mightily from the increase in Calpers' uh, values, um, the performance in the past year. Who knows what's going to happen next? Um, you could imagine uh, being aggressive in selling a lot of city-owned real estate to try to raise $28 million, I believe. My hunch is we have that value, or actually much more than that in the city. Um, but that doesn't come without a cost because you're selling that land. Maybe you can hit a twofer if that somehow serves our housing requirements that we're working on completely separately. Um, but still to understand the benefit, we want to know uh, if you did that, what actually happens? I think what happens is we save $3 million a year that we're currently sending to CalPERS out of our general fund. So we get to increase our general fund by, uh, we get $3 million a year and we can spend on other things, I think. But I haven't connected all those dots for sure. Um, I don't know if you guys can do that analysis or not. Because then the culinary question is, well, what if you paid off half of the UAL or a quarter or a tenth? What, how does that drop into the general fund? And those numbers, as numbers, actually not qualitative statements, but numbers, then can guide us to understand if we want to sell a little postage stamp lot somewhere to increase or decrease our UAL or be aggressive and sell the uh, old city hall building or, uh, or some pocket park somewhere or uh, the old fire station 
up on the hill if we're allowed to do that. I don't know what all our city properties are. We're still trying to do a log of what they are and what their values could be. But uh, there's a point at which the qualitative discussion needs to stop and we need to understand the relationship between paying off our UAL and how it affects our general fund budget. The genesis of all this being that we have a deficit, we talk about it being a structural deficit. So we're gonna talk later in today's meeting about tax changes uh, and other ways of raising funds as well as structural changes in our, in our way we manage things. But one structural way of attending to our uh, unfunded pension liability could be uh, this sort of uh, decrease in our liability by paying it off directly from an asset. Um, and we just need to compare those alternatives. One thing to mention, of course, is that you have no obligation to be paying off all of the UAL. Just because you have a $30 million UAL or 28 million, whatever the number is, you can decide to do 75% of it, 50% of it, whatever you want. There's no requirement that you pay off, pay it all off. In fact, cities, not, some cities are deciding that they, you know, they want to hedge their bets a little bit and they're not, they're not paying it all off. So you always have that alternative. This is not an all or nothing thing. I mean, when you're saying it there, uh, Brian, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but one simple way of articulating our pension UAL situation is we're, we're essentially getting a 6.8% uh, loan on $28 million from the state of California without having to go through any paperwork or pay any fees to anybody. That's right. Um, and you're paying $3 million a year for that. And if the, if the pension bond can reduce the 3 million to 2 million or whatever the number is, then it would be, might be worth your while or, you know, whatever the reduction is, but you're absolutely correct. You basically, because you have an unfunded liability, um, you, PERS is making you a loan and you're paying them 6.8% on that loan. Absolutely correct. Yeah, that's a nice way to me of thinking about it because it's as if we had to show up with cash and we were issuing, going through this exercise, it's as if we were issuing a bond for $28 million at 6.8% interest. Um, we're not doing that. That's automatically done to, for us by CalPERS. Um, but that's our situation. And the question is, what do we want to do with that bond? Do nothing? just sit on that interest rate or paid off by uh like you would if you had a house that had a loan on it and you had another piece of property that had no loan on it you might sell that house that other piece of property and pay off your the first on your house um or uh, refinance your uh your loan by taking out a, a cheaper loan somewhere else and paying off the more expensive yeah, one more thing Wait, to Brian, i'm sorry let me i don't want to just add to that before you respond pardon me um it might be helpful and i like like this thread to bring Michael Wagner to the table. He's our, our property manager. What comes to mind for me, you said fire station. We have a fire station we own too. Um, one has a general obligation bond on it where we deferred payment until 2026 and then that's on a 15 year amortization schedule. Uh, and that debt is looming in front of us because it turns out it'll be start very expensive once we start paying it. I have no idea if financially you could do this, but could we sell that building? And nobody shoot me for saying that, but as just to spin this thread. And then potentially we sell that building, get out from under that long-term debt obligation in, in so doing. Um, beautiful new state-of-the-art LEED certified building. Uh, we somehow managed to contribute to paying this off. And maybe we also sell that the fire station, and to your point, Ian, with some type of um, deed restriction or mandate on it that some type of housing be, be constructed. And so we start to piece together some of these disparate goals that we're really uh, burdened with uh, but hit multiple avenues. So um, before you respond, Brian, 
Ian, does that sound nuts or does that sound interesting? I mean, not nuts in theory and not even nuts in, as a, you know, stretch plausible goal. I'm sure someone will shoot you even though you didn't ask them to um, for suggesting it. But um, Building one and building two. One has long-term debt, one does not. <laughs> Let me uh, answer okay. 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 two things. First of all, um, Ian, um, also to mention that, you know, rates have gone up recently uh, because of what's going on in the world and that we don't know where rates are going to go rates they could come down right now like i said you, you're borrowing rates about five percent and so the, the bogey between five and 6.8 is worth so much but if rates come down you, the benefit could be higher and there's nothing that says that when we after we do the validation process you're obligated to do anything you can decide the market's not right or maybe the market is right so that just to keep that in mind. And related to that, Brian, just imagine the world more like 1978 and interest rates are 17%, not five. Um, is it is there a plausible scenario where CalPERS hurdle rate is still 6.8% um, and market interest rates are double digits? I, I'm gonna let Craig talk about that, but because I, I, that's not my, that's my head of, you know, over my pay grade, but yes, I guess it's possible. Although I think that PERS rate's gonna follow somewhat what the rest of the rates are, are doing, um, but let me defer that. But the other thing I wanted to mention is that make sure that you understand that the general obligation bonds are not an obligation of the city of Sausalito. The general obligation bonds are an obligation of the, the, the citizens, the taxpayers of the city of Sausalito. This is not an obligation of the city. The, the, the taxpayers or the property owners are an assessed of, um, a, a property tax to pay those general obligation bonds. That Those bonds are not and never will be an obligation of the city. Fair point. Yeah, point taken. This, it is, in fact, we, we do collect property tax to, to help pay for that. But, um, okay, maybe I'm getting my, my accounting wrong, but we collect property tax and then use that to pay for the general obligation bonds if we didn't have to use a property tax to pay for the general obligation bonds, you couldn't use it for something else. No, you wouldn't get that tax. This is a tax, what we call a tax override. This is voter approved taxes, and this is specifically for the payment of, of the general obligation bond. City also gets a portion of the 1% tax that's collected. You're gonna get that no matter what, but the portion of the, of the levy that's being paid, that is being assessed to the property owners for the bonds is specifically and totally for that that use that, that that as long as those bonds are outstanding the voters that they voted to be assessed and they're going to get they're going to get assessed as long as those bonds are outstanding this is a twist that way about so what you're uh, this is important distinction at least me sorry if everyone else knew it but this pension obligation bond is actually essentially a tax increase uh, a um special assessment on property owners nope no no nope. um, let's not confuse the general obligation bonds which is something completely different i just wanted to clarify that the general obligation bonds are not a liability of the, of the city of Sausalito. That is a liability of the taxpayers. The pension bonds is a general fund obligation, just like you're paying, your payments to PERS are a general fund sure. obligation. You're paying $3 million a year to PERS. We issued the pension obligation bonds. PERS gets paid off, and now you're going to pay something less to the to the bondholders. Yeah, I'm sorry, why were we then talking about general obligation bonds? Because that's what the fire station um, was purchased. So I was just trying to give you a loan from debt. Okay, but on loan those same themes, let's say the Bank of America building, we bought it for two, it's worth four. Could we borrow against it 
uh, at a lower interest rate, but to get out a line of credit and pay down. Is, I mean, I'm trying, how, do, how could we be thinking in a crafty manner? We've got certificates of participation, maybe they're bound by the same general obligation bond scenario, but we're, we're trying to piece together several uh, items here to kind of see the full financial opportunity. All of those are on the, on the table, absolutely. And if you, you know, again, if you think you have excess property or property that you can sell uh, and raise cash and use that cash to pay down the UAL, and that's something you want to do, you can do that. Of course, once you do that, you no longer have the property. Uh, but, you know, that other cities don't have the benefit of having saleable property. And if you do, then that's something that's unique to Sausalito. Thank you. Mayor and council member, if I can, can, can we let um, uh, Craig say a few words and, yes. and then move on? Thank you, Brian. All right, well, good afternoon. Um, good to be working with the, the city again. NHA Advisors has uh, worked with the city, I think going back to 2013. So last nine years on various projects. I've got on this call also Roy Kim from my office who is part of our pension group that we have. We actually have a practice group that is exclusively focused on pension liabilities for public agencies around the state. So I think, you know, Brian's done a good job of summarizing the, the concepts and the structure around what the city's opportunities are to deal with the pension liability. I think from our perspective, financially speaking, uh, we have two primary objectives. The first one is really to make sure that all of the uh, decision makers, primarily the city council, are educated to the level that they know what they may or may not be approving. Unlike uh, potentially financing something like the Bank of America building where it's, you know, the conversation around the financing is, do we want to pay cash or do we want to borrow money? We don't typically get into a lot of the minutia. Here, there are so many moving targets and so many moving uh, components to a pension uh, payment or a pension liability, whether all or a portion or even a small piece of the UAL you decide to restructure. I think for us, one, get through the education, make sure everybody understands it enough to feel like they can competently uh, make a decision on alternatives. And then two, as, as with regards to the financial alternatives, we really want to make sure that you understand or, or that we get direction from you all on what exactly you're trying to accomplish. And, and by that, I mean, we, we have probably worked with over 50 public agencies in the last two years alone on identifying, is this a cash flow issue you're trying to solve uh, for budgetary reasons? Hey, we understand that our UAL payments are going to be going up one, two, three million more a year. And we're going to, you know, for the next five years, we're going to be in a world of hurt. Uh, so we're trying to restructure, right? We're trying to uh, change the, the shape of the repayments so that we can build it into our budget. Or two, are you truly looking at this like you do refinancing your home mortgage? Um, are you trying to refinance that obligation for interest rate savings? So Brian mentioned Hey, if we're borrowing money in something less than the 6.8%, right, we're, we're saving interest. And that's over the entire term of the repayment. So whether that's 15, 20, 25 years, 
you're going to save, let's just say theoretically, $5 million. Well, that's great, right? That's, we all want to save money. That's, that, that, that sounds like a perfect objective. But if, if it isn't helping our cash flow in the next two, three, four, five years, uh, does that carry as much value? So the first real question for the, for the council is, what are we trying to accomplish by looking at a potential restructuring of our pension liability? And, and, and the reason we want to make sure we understand that is because there's, there's two totally different ways that we quantitatively will look at the analysis if we're trying to solve for cash flow savings versus maximizing the interest savings that you get over the entire term of this existing CalPERS loan, if you want to call it that, that you'll be making over the next 20 or 25 years. So um, I think our initial job, and we don't have any numbers for you today to share, but we, we always like to put things in a magnitude, right, into a, a way that you all can at least understand how significant are, are these options. If we go back and say, well, the current market conditions are 5% on a cost of funds, if you were to go out and issue a pension bond, um, and it could save you, let's just say theoretically, um, $250,000 a year, you're probably not going to get too excited about going through the exercise for 250000 a year. If it turns out that we can structure it in a way that saves $2 million a year, then, you know, that's substantial for your budget, right? So that's a key drive. So our our initial work that we will be doing for the city is really digging into the Bartel analysis, digging into the existing um, unfunded liability that you have. Um, I'm sure you're aware, and, and Brian alluded to this, that the uh, CalPERS is not doing very well under the current fiscal year. Uh, as of June, well, as of where we are now, uh, CalPERS could potentially be between minus 5 and minus 10% on their uh, which really will counter all of the benefits that we saw last year with the 21 plus percent return. So clearly, you know, we can't rely on CalPERS to do consistently you know, 0 or 10%, right? We know that it's always going to bounce around. Uh, we do believe, and I think most actuaries will agree, that CalPERS is trending down on what their assumed uh, rate of return is going to be or discount rate because it's the only way they're going to keep this UAL from uh, constantly being uh, impacted by uh, sub-performance here, sub-7, sub-6.8. Um, so it'll we're going to basically build all that into some scenarios for you. This is something that we would typically be able to, to generate in the next two to three weeks once we get all the city's data. And uh, we would phase in the conversation, right? That the initial magnitude analysis is gonna give you uh, two or three potential scenarios for what you might wanna consider. And then with some direction from council, we can really start to fine tune the analysis, work with the actuaries, with Bartel and Associates, and then come up with a real financing plan and a strategy that to Brian's point, you would implement as part of a pension uh, validation action. You're going to have to approve a resolution, approve a form of documents, that that is what becomes part of your validation action. And then, you know, then we're kind of in a holding pattern while it goes through the board system. And that's what's been done in some of your peers here in Lynn County. 
uh, Puerto Madera, Larkspur, uh, San Anselmo. So there's been others that have certainly gone through that exercise over the last 12, 12 months. So, um, you know, happy to have uh, Roy answer any questions or I can answer any questions as we uh, kind of get into this, but we don't have any uh, specific data that we can really share with you today. Okay, Thank, thanks for that approach, Craig. Um, See, Ian has his hand up and then I have some questions about um, POB design, uh, so Ian. Thanks, so Craig, uh, thanks for that. Um, not for me all by myself to say the scope of your work, but uh, you have an engagement and I'm wondering if you could put all your all your effort into the first half of what you said and check in with us before you do any work on the second half. I think I'd, I'd be interested if, if the mayor and the city manager agree, I'd be interested in the scenario running before we spend any implement it, money on the how, how part of implementing it. Oh, um, absolutely. That's absolutely right. Um, so, and then on the scenario running, uh, I didn't know if, if your statement was a as an actual question, but I believe from looking at the graphs, I was trying to find it, and I don't see the simple graph in the Bartell report, but in, I think the October 30th presentation from the city manager, there was a graph that showed our pension costs since the year 2000, when uh, they were approximately $300,000 a year, they're currently $3 million a year. They continue to drift upwards over the next, I believe, 12 years or so, and then they start to decrease substantially as the, uh, uh, as the demographics shift, polite way of saying it, um, uh, in those years for early employees, um, uh, until it returns to a very a very manageable sum. There's a big hump. So I, I, you know, arbitrage is always interesting, but I think we are concerned about a what we're calling a structural deficit this year, next year, year after, and and many potentially for many years to come. And we're looking at ways of addressing it. And I was trying to think of how to summarize what the what's the cause of the structural deficit so, and i think it bothers people that Sausalito, you know by all accounts worked in the year 2000 we had a fire department and a police department and we maintained our parks and somehow everything worked uh and we didn't have a deficit and now uh we have a deficit with the same basically the same population so what changed and the mayor uh, city manager pointed out we have some liabilities from some financings to, to do maintenance on our parks. So we could say that that's the cost for not having amortized our maintenance back in the year 2000. So, okay, got that. But even all that's um, a fraction of the big number, the big kahuna, which is the pension costs. So if that graph, the big hump is accurate, uh, that we really have 15 years of a hump to deal with, then we really need to figure out a strategy to get through that help to take care of what we would be calling our structural imbalance. That it's really the pensions, first and foremost, that are causing our troubles. And um, and I think the concern for everybody is complicated finance is hard to con convey. And if there's a risk of it failing, then we haven't solved our problem and we've just muddied the waters. And I really would love to explore uh, before we think of how to structure a bond to pay off the pension liabilities. I really would like to look just that the implications of how much of the UAL we pay off now in two ways, either directly to CalPERS or as Bartel described, I think they called it, it was on slide 87 of their presentation. Um, they called it uh, uh, making additional discretionary payments, ADPs. Um, in a, and I didn't know if that was to CalPERS or not, but they basically talked about having, I think a version of the 115 trust uh, that is pays a different interest rate, has um, 
a, a different payoff schedule, a different amount of like, uh, appreciation potential um, to dealing with our uh, UAL. Um, so really would like to just look at that analysis even before you look at what it costs or what the potential interest rate should be for the funds. Just what are the implications to our annual operating general fund budget if we sell an asset and, or assets and pay off our UAL, if we pay off half of it, a third of it, all of it, if we do that directly to CalPERS or we do it through this uh, additional discretionary payment scheme. That's it. Yeah, and those are actually really good points. Um, and it helps clarify this conversation because I think uh, there's there's two things. You're absolutely right. You've got this hump um, that I would say over 50% of the cities and public agencies that we're working with are trying to address, right? They're, they're fearful that um, expenditures and that payment are getting out of control and they're becoming a larger and larger portion of the budget which is squeezing out being able to do anything else. And so uh, restructuring the pension obligation by maybe flatlining it or having it have some kind of a manageable payment and not do this, right, is um, that, that's a strategy, right, that has, is everything to do with cash flow management, budgetary practices, and less than it's it's it, I we always use the, the analogy. It's like a 15-year home mortgage versus a 30, right? You can 15 sounds great, get a lower interest rate, but boy, those payments are paid, right? And in this case, what CalPERS has done to the cities is said, you have this liability. We expect you to pay it off quicker rather than later, and so they compress that repayment and it forces that hum. That in some cases, I mean, we've got communities. Uh, larger cities uh, than Sausalito that, you know, it's an $8 million number that they're, you know, they're watching this thing move 5 million a year up and they're saying that's not sustainable, right? We, we literally will be cutting our police force in order to make these pension payments. And that's the wrong answer. Um, the other uh, point that you made that I, I want to clarify is that, you know, Sausalito was one of the first cities to actually enact a section 115 trust. And when you think about the of 115, right, what is it? It's really an offsetting asset to the CalPERS liability. So uh, we have some very conservative communities around California who do not like Sacramento, do not trust CalPERS, um, are frustrated with the volatility of their return. And they have elected to put as much money as they can into their 115 and manage the, the investment in the 115 rather than do the ADPs that you're talking about to CalPERS. So they, they, yes, they agree their UAL might look bigger than it wants to be, but if let's just say theoretically, the city was dropping two or 3 million a year into their section 115, in 10 years, you'd have 30 plus million dollars, right? So you might still have this UAL theoretically outstanding with CalPERS, but you could, on the books, you could say, well, but we have this investment that we've made in our own trust that we are, we're, we're electing and choosing what to invest in. Them. And we believe that it's, at some point, we're going to have so much money there, we could just pay it off to, you know, give it to CalPERS and tell them to go away. Can I ask a follow-up question, Mary, just on that? Have you seen people actually structure it in a way that seems both trans memorable and trans uh, um, transparent to everyone. Right? They would, you would call it, I mean, it's called the 115 section trust, but what it really is is a city run pension fund 
uh, that's going to make payments to CalPERS, and it's actually managed. I mean, who manages that? Is it the city treasurer? Is there a is there a consortium of uh, sort of a credible agency that you can turn to that competes with CalPERS uh, or takes city money to invest? Or what, you know, does a town like ours have a plausible way of thinking it could possibly get a better rate of return than CalPERS in the, in some sort of reasonable and fiduciarily defensible way? Let me let me answer that, Dan. So thank you for the question, council member. The city's trust is administered by PARS, the Public Agency Retirement Services Corporation. And they're the ones in charge with investing according to what the city's investment strategy is. If it's conservative or aggressive or whatever, Sussler has chosen a conservative approach to their investments. And that's the amount that we talked about a couple of months ago that you know, they manage not only the pension 115 trust, but the post employment benefit trust as well. And in those two accounts, you have a total of about four and a half, four point, it's four, four and a half million dollars roughly. Uh, and more of it in the Cal on the PER side as opposed to the OPEP side. So we don't do that. Uh, we, you know, as far as who would manage it in the city, I, I can't tell you the expertise is not here to do that. And that's why you outsource that. Well, could I, let me just chime in on that, though. So not to go off topic on the 115, but I think the really important word is manage and who is managing and how. Uh, we actually only have, um, I think it's according to your April 12th presentation, city manager, we only have $2.5 million in the trust. Um, we should have had $4.5 million in the 115 trust. So we weren't making the contributions. And so you, the plan is only as good as the execution on the plan. And then the second point I'll make about the 115 trust is that at the time, we were earning three to four uh, percent in that trust when we could have been earning six point eight percent if we had actually sent the money to Calpers. And so those are considerations as well. Um, but I am cognizant of time, and I think that our task here today was to receive information from you and give direction. Uh, Ian, I agree with your request. I think it's a prudent one to uh, why, and I heard it in two ways. One is come up with this. Um, this comparative analysis so we can understand kind of where we are, where the options are. And then the second um, related, and you said it more eloquently than I was going to, is to really be our money manager, and since that is what you do, and help us look more broadly across our portfolio to understand how we might pull different levers uh, to be uh, really smart and, and crafty about this. Um, the other thing I'd like to add to that is that <clears throat> I think the devils are always in the details, and so I'm interested to hear when you come to the council your thoughts on a good POB design. And you know, what does that mean to you? Um, it seems to me that a good POB is a very simple one, right? Predictable, fixed payments, a fixed interest rate. Uh, but I'd be interested to know if that would require a series of bonds or different maturities so that the combined annual interest and principal uh, are approximately the same amount every year. Uh, and then the other piece of that is that I think we would want to add a, a call feature. And I think that if that increases the cost, I'd like to know. But I think that should be a non-negotiable for us, given some lessons learned across other uh, long-term debt obligations. Okay, so let me just pause. I know we could, we could probably sit here all day with you and, and ask you all these questions, but uh, we have some other items. So city manager, did we provide what you were hoping? Uh, sort of, so let me kind of sum up what I think I heard. Okay. Um, uh, so the discussion and the questions uh, are part of what we've heard. And I think there are some real need to clarify, you know, uh, if we are or if we aren't, because, you know, time is ticking. And so some of the things that I think we need to do is decide if you're going to, um, uh, I would bring this back to the full council for them to weigh in on it because time is ticking. 
we need to know if we're going to go to uh, the market or not and we need the full council and I'd hate to come back to the finance committee again and answer a bunch of questions and then go to the council meeting and answer a bunch more questions and then it turn into sometime late in the fall before we actually do something and then this has been a wasted exercise as you all know uh, this was pitched by Charlie in June uh, we took a mini run at it in November December and here we are in May and we still haven't come to a point where we think uh, there's a decision to be made so I think um, coming back to the full council with answering the questions and uh, in ways that you've asked them today I think would be beneficial and then secondly uh, let me just go back to the to the trust um, if I said 3.5 million I misspoke if I put in a report it was wrong because <laughs> the number is the total number in our accounts as of 322 in the OPEB and pension account is four million five hundred ninety eight thousand six hundred fourteen dollars and 21 cents so I apologize for that misinformation because that's not accurate uh, so I think the next step for the Finance Committee is to really bring in our PARS people and let them talk about what they do how they do because if you think that's something we can handle internally and you want to go that route I think it's important to understand what that entails so uh, I would recommend that you know we take uh, these questions uh, have some type of um, uh, report that is you know some summarizes these questions and uh, some of the thoughts in this meeting to the full council and then get some direction on whether to proceed or not uh, with the full council's involvement and then I think that it would be really important for us to talk about you know the 115 trust because that is a, a chunk of money sitting there that people did the right thing a few years back that has been saved that we've talked about how we used it so not only how we use it how much is in there uh, how it's managed but the actual policy of investment because right now you have it in a very conservative uh, strategy when you could move that to something more aggressive but that's a call that needs to be considered just one question then just jogging in on what uh, Craig talked about so if our pension um, UAL is 28 million dollars that's not accounting for the 4.9 million that's in the 115 so that's correct well, that's, that's good to remember and I think that messaging needs that when we talk about those two whenever we talk about UAL when we're giving a status report on the city we probably at the same time should say that UAL is partially offset by the fact that we do have almost five million dollars set aside yeah. for that. Yeah, and Councilmember Sobieski, I believe I said that multiple occasions. Okay. When I talk about our UAL being at 69%, and I said it's probably closer to 71, 72 because of that yeah. four and a half million, five million dollars, or three million, whatever that number is that's in that account. That's not something we can put on the books that's uh, accepted by the accountants and our, our auditors but it's really a add-on and it is a true impact so yeah we're not 69% uh, out we're closer to something else because of that investment I'll be sure to, to highlight that in a way that you know people can remember yeah I agree with you you've said it and amazingly I only heard it it only really rung in my head right now and even though I've heard it 10 times so I'm sure that that fact is lost on others in no small part because the section 115 trust sounds like some obscure thing that no one wants to pay attention to if it was called the, the Sausalito pension fund uh, savings account I think the the meaning would be in the title so and we probably can't give it a different name but we may think of reminding people what it is whenever we speak about it yeah so I, I think I have some direction um, I will dot the I's and cross the T's on the city manager contract with uh, NHA advisors uh, to do some things and, and I want to just be clear that it's just not advisement on pension obligation bonds it can be other things that you know you've laid out 
Uh, it could be a private placement. It could be something else. It could be something totally unrelated that requires some financial analysis. And I think in our situation, because you know there is some uh, need and there is some uh, desire and some creative resources out there, we should utilize them. And, and I anticipate Craig uh, will help with that. And, and the whole legal side of it, Brian's been doing for some time. So I think that's uh, important that we note that to do this work, you need the team. And you now have the team in place. So thank you all for your uh, approval of setting this up. But uh, we need to get moving on some of this stuff. Okay, great. Well, we'll see you all uh, in front of full council and we're going to reserve, uh, we took up an hour, as only two of us and we only got through the little bit. So we're gonna reserve a lot of time for you guys. So thank you. Okay, well, then we're gonna move on to the next uh, item we have, which is a discussion direction on measure O and Chris, that's you obviously. <laughs> yeah, let me pull up my report so I don't misspeak again. So uh, let me thank you again for your attention and having this on the agenda. And Measure O is, is a focus, but it also includes other revenue options. Let's uh, talking and talking about uh, ways to get to other revenue options and how we might achieve that uh, in a way that you know you've approved already that causes some pivots and some things that Councilmember Sobieski alluded to on Tuesday night in terms of uh, community survey and you know election consultant conversation. So let's talk about Measure O. Uh, again, you know that it expires in a couple of years. It's about a million to a million and a half a year. Uh, it's part of the city's sales tax, which is uh, state law is everyone taxes everybody 1%. The city uh, electorate voted on Measure O, added another half a percent. So our effective sales tax rate is one and a half percent. And the overall sales tax rate in the city is eight and a half percent. And I think we've been real clear about the city is not all of that. It, it, it mostly goes to the state and to the county. So uh, the overall rate being eight, five percent and the city's portion of that being one and a half of those eight and a half percent. So uh, one of the things that uh, we've heard uh, again is, you know, elections um, uh, take time. There's schedules and legal requirements need to be met. Uh, so you saw the time schedule, the time frame, and the city attorney's uh, report on Tuesday night which says, if you want to get something on this November's ballot, you have to do X, Y, Z by uh, this particular date. Uh, so with respect to Measure O, uh, you know, in my staff report, there's a recommendation. Uh, I, will, I will say that right now, and I will say it again at the end of this uh, little conversation and presentation. Uh, it needs to be certainly extended, and the expansion of it to me is something that you need to really strongly consider, and I recommend that you look at an expansion and we talk about that. So in your report, I uh, talk about uh, what you can and can't do. Uh, there's a constitutional cap on sales tax for cities that you know you know two percent. Uh, we've used you know uh, some of that already, and if we don't um, use it and someone else uses it before us, then the bottom line is you'd have to go to the state if you get to the cap to get some exemption to do that. And that's why in certain counties like Alameda County, where I'm from you see a sales tax rate of 10 and a quarter or 10.5 or 10.7 in LA counties because they've exceeded the constitutional cap and have gone to get special legislation to uh, uh, get by that. So let me talk about Marin County, our neighbors, because if you raise sales tax, the first question is gonna be, 
who's paying for that and, and, and how is that going to make us competitive? And the answer is uh, we are not um, uh, the highest. If the eight and a half goes to eight and measure O isn't renewed, we would be the lowest in Marin County. Puerto Madera is at 8.75%. Fairfax is at 8.75%. Larkspur is at 8.75%. Novato, who is lower than us, is at 8.25%. San Anselmo is like us at 8.5%. San Rafael is at 9.0%. And we're at 8.5%. And so uh, that would take us in 2025, if it's not renewed, to 8%, which would make us the lowest tax, uh, sales tax in, in Marin County. And if you look at somebody near us uh, up the freeway, uh, let's look at Sonoma County. Kotai is 9.5%. Hillsburg is 9%. Petaluma is 9.5%. Roner Park is 9%. Santa Rosa is 9.25%. Sebastopol is 925 And Sonoma is 9.0%. So all these folks have a higher sales tax for the most part than the city of Sausalito. And so for me, uh, I always hear, okay, uh, it's gonna make us not competitive uh, and, you know, it's going to be something that um, is going to be um, what I call uh, um, uh, important to keep flat or lower because we want more people to shop here. Uh, so the people that do shop here, and I'll make this argument as I made it in National City, uh, which is the uh, people that pay your sales tax, in particular in San Diego County, a lot of them don't live in San Diego County. In Sausalito, a lot of people that pay your sales tax, obviously are residents, but a lot of them are visitors. So the net impact to a resident, I would argue, isn't a percent and a half, it's less. And what is that? You know, we could guess, but we should probably find out. But I, I would I would really uh, strongly uh, believe that it's not a percent and a half that's paid by our residents in full. So that $3.6 million in sales tax that we get, I'm guessing a portion of that comes from other people, as in Anaheim, California, where the sales tax and the TOT is paid for in large part by people that come to Disneyland. Here they come to see the magnificent views. They come to breathe the fresh sea air. They come to eat in our restaurants. And I'm not sure uh, they're from here, but I guarantee you this. They're using your roads, your services, your facilities, et cetera. So, you know, in my mind, uh, are they paying their fair share? Uh, I, would, I, would, I would wonder. So um, as I look at these things, uh, I think that it's really important to to have a real uh, aggressive uh, discussion about expanding it, extending it and expanding it, because if you don't, um, you know, what's at risk? And I always do the 10 year math arithmetic. Uh, you've gained over the 10 years, probably 12 million bucks at 1.2 million a year. So going forward, if you don't do this, you lose at least 12 million bucks uh, if you keep it at the same rate. So I see this as a $12 million problem not a $1.2 million problem. I see it as a $12 million gain, not a $1.2 million gain over the life of its, its issuance. So um, my recommendation is that you, know, you ask uh, your colleagues on the city council to look at something that relates to a ballot measure that extends and expands measure O, a minimum of half a percent. So in total, that would be 1% more so you would be at 8.75%, 8, 9%, I think that's the number. And that you look at it as um, something that it's been in the past, which is a general election. 
because if you make it and you tie it to pensions or you make it and you tie it to park improvements, it turns into a two-thirds ballot measure. Uh, if it's a general tax uh, and it can be used across the board, the threshold is 50% plus one. And that's what you did here in the last go round. I think that creates some questions about, well, what are you gonna spend it for? Uh, are you gonna spend it for city employee salaries? Are you gonna expend it for you know, uh, pensions? Are you gonna spend it for infrastructure? Uh, and those are always questions that come up and are valid, legitimate questions, but you have to have it before you spend it. So I'm recommending that you look at this, um, bring some ballot language to the council. Uh, we talked to um, our consultant that we've hired to do a community survey and asked them to pivot into some ballot questions. What's your appetite for you know, a sales tax increase of 5%? What's your appetite for a sales tax increase of 1%? You know, what's, you know, your idea about other things that are, uh, we know are going to be on the ballot like cannabis. Uh, I think that's the, the direction uh, I would like to, you know, take and use my authority as a city manager to um, pivot this group into that. Uh, I think it would be helpful to have, you know, input from the council or participation by the council to help how this is done. Uh, because, you know, you don't want this being a staff-driven thing. And ultimately, if you put something on the ballot, you don't want this to be a city of Sausalito, city council, city staff. There's got to be some community support for this. And, and I believe there is some out there. And there obviously is community opposition, any tax measure, any sales tax extension. But, you know, I think if you don't, um, then I think you probably um, lost the opportunity to um, keep the, the train tracks maintained and the trains on time, you probably turn into something that's a little more of a struggle. And that's one thing we're trying to avoid here, uh, that we don't continue to struggle with this because the word structural deficit is, you know, something that people use. But I think when I, I gave a presentation on April 12th, I gave you the reasons as to why that structural deficit exists. And it's a multitude of factors, pensions being a large piece of it, but there are other factors as well. So with that, uh, I will conclude my uh, report and see if there are any questions. Looks like uh, Ian has a couple. I just wanted to start with, I'm sure there'll be others, um, but I see manager, I just, you're such a, you know, experienced veteran of city administration over many different jurisdictions. When I'm thinking about raising, generally I've always been against taxes. I always feel like work, work fills whatever time you allot and if you have money, it gets spent. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, while this city council, I'm sure in, if we, you know, endorse raising taxes, I'm sure we'll spend it, um, you know, going through the, the effort of that, we'll spend it with real precision on, on near-term things. But over the long haul, if you have more money coming in, is there any experience you have on how to structure uh, yourself to avoid the, what essentially would happen, which is a lot of the money end up going towards long-term benefits for employees. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm anti-employer. I'm faulting it. I just know that the pressure of the union negotiation cycle is such over periods of time that over from one city council to the next, to the next, one can imagine that sort of general funds that are generally available get pulled into a sort of compensation creep with municipalities competing against one another until you are back in the same position where you're just not taking care of infrastructure, not taking, 
not budging maintenance expenses against capital expenditure, one-time capital expenditures, not taking care of the numerous things in the city and all the money is kind of going to uh, current accounts instead of longer-term accounts. And so it's kind of a general question that sort of informs the thinking about sales taxes as a general pot of money. Um, any thoughts? Yes. Yeah, lots of thoughts. Um, so let me get to your question first and then I'll color it. Uh, so the way to make sure that the money's spent in a way that you believe it should be spent and binding future councils or future administrations is to make it a two-thirds vote. You know, you say it's for fire, fire and police, then it's got to go for fire and police, but it's got to meet that threshold. You say it's for parks, it's got to meet that threshold. Uh, but once you say that, then you have locked in that use. And that threshold, which is 66.7%, is what's required when you have an election. When you say it's for general purpose, that makes it a little easier in terms of trying to get to the number. Uh, we, we in National City, we put a public safety facility uh, tax measure on the ballot. Uh, it got what I thought was a landslide. It got 59%, but it failed because it needed 66.7%. So that's one way to lock it in, uh, council member, if that's what you choose to do as a, as a council. And as it relates to a general measure where uh, people uh, later down the road might spend it in ways that maybe you felt that that wasn't um, what it should have been done when you did it back then, um, you know, I think that's, that's um, that because people made decisions in Sausalito to save money, I don't know, over time, you, you now have $4.9 million unencumbered and you got 15% of that in a savings account. And, and we've been going through that. And I think that's been pointed out to me. But you cannot um, uh, anticipate what a future council will do. Yeah, they might use it for employees. Yeah, they might use it for other things like emergencies. Uh, but the fact that you have it is better than not having it. And so when we left uh, San Leandro and when I left uh, National City, uh, we went through not one, but two, but three uh, measures on the same ballot in National City, ended up passing the 1% sales tax. And to this day, uh, they are in solid, on solid financial footing because we put the effort in then. In San Leandro, we did a, a four tax thing that city council approved and supported. And they're on financial footing because of what was done then. And what the council did uh, a few years back to put money into these trusts and, and two year savings and create this, um, this cushion that you can use in emergencies, I believe that was its intended purpose for emergencies. And sometimes employees are part of those. Uh, and so I don't you know, uh, ever want to tell you that a council of the future would do X, Y, and Z, but they could, they could, but, but you're giving them an opportunity to do that. You're giving a future administration an opportunity to do that and use their best uh, judgment at that time to make the decisions they believe are right. But if you don't do it, then you know, we're gonna spend the next three years, four years, five years here struggling. Is there a way to, can you legally, I guess, I don't see any reason why you couldn't uh, advertise that this money is going to be put into an account called the XYZ account, um, even though, and make clear, it's not restricted for that purpose, but it's the, the you know, the account, the funds for. That's what they did on the ballot the first time around. They, in the information, it said this is going to be used for infrastructure, but then they set it up to be this general tax, so they didn't need that majority vote the way that Chris uh, yeah. did. But did they ever take that a step further? I know they put it on the ballot that way, but you actually had a fund that's called, you know, I'm trying to think of disincentives for a future city council. Really just even, even information conveyance, you know, when you come on the city council, you're different from the fire hose. 
So it's it's a different act to spend money on the general fund uh, than it is to, to say, okay, we're going to do a funds transfer from the uh, road maintenance fund or the infrastructure fund to the general fund. We're allowed to, but it would be an active the direction of city council, yeah, go ahead and pay our general obligations from that fund. We're allowed to do it. Um, I suppose we, we could uh, we can adopt a resolution that says that every year on the beginning of the fiscal year, we put X percentage of the monies from Measure O into XYZ fund. We could give ourselves at least that policy direction. Yeah. So if I can, Mayor and Council Member, um, so uh, you know, my, my recollection is the Measure O money was used for a lot of improvements. And this year, because of the budget that the uh, city found itself in, we said we weren't going to use that measure O for those improvements. We were going to use it to plug our deficit. And you, as a city council, took a very good step, I thought, in restoring that so that we have a, a record of using measure O money over the last seven years, eight years, in the intended whatever that spirit of that was, is we're going to improve our facilities, we're going to maintain things, we're going to use this money for that, not for just general operational expenses, which is how this, this budget was adopted, but you tweaked it in, I think it was February, when you took that $1.2 million out of your reserves and put it back into infrastructure, which should be what we call uh, some aggressive roads uh, and some grant administration and project administration. And so uh, I think it would be very good for us to continue telling the public that Measure O was provided as a general uh, tax measure and it was said to be intended to be used for XYZ and it was flexibility to use it otherwise and when it was used otherwise you fixed that uh, so it hasn't really been a tale of we took it from 2015-16-17-18 and on and used it for whatever we wanted to I believe the city has used it for infrastructure but I'll have to find those reports I believe there were years when the city added when it had money general fund money to uh, the infrastructure costs in the capital improvement program so that we could supplement that measure O money. So the city's done a good job with it. We just didn't do it this past year, but you've corrected that. Yeah, uh, good to raise those, those questions and uh, maybe in the staff report to the full council, Chris, you can also raise them with some ideas. Um, I just had two uh, minor questions. Did, so did you have a follow-up, Chris or Ian? Well, I did, but I, I mean, I. Yes, but I'll, I'll go after you. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I didn't. I, no, it's I, fine. I think I, no, my no. wife went up. Um, so you, we're making the case that uh, visitors are coming in. They'll pay most of this. Um, they're using our roads, etc. Uh, could we get that information from HDL in time for the staff report to the council so we can show percentage of out of town uh, purchases by in the sales tax report? Yeah, okay, and then yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I will ask them. I'm not sure that you can do that to a penny, but but you'd probably get some sense of it. Okay, great. And then my other question is, um, well, let me just present this to you, and then maybe you want to address something about it in the staff report. Um, some initial feedback I've gotten after talking about it, that we talked about at the council meeting, is that, hey, there's going to be so many other things uh, on the ballot. Um, let's not risk it not passing. Keep it at the same rate uh, if you want to just re-up it. And so you may want to be ready to just respond to sort of the wisdom of putting it on the ballot with other measures and kind of how how confident we feel about it. And you said at a lesser amount. Not a lesser amount, constant, the same amount. Constant amount. Constant amount. Constant lesser amount. amount than 1%. So the constant amount. Correct. Okay. 
right, that was it. Um, so, Ian, yeah. I, I would, riffing off of that, I would just point out, I just looked up Mill Valley's sales tax, which you didn't include in the report is 9%. So that's our yeah. very neighboring community. Um, yeah. I thought it was, you know, super, super compelling to me that there's a constitutional cap and other people could take our um, money if we don't take it. Um, and I think that voter education is key. It was a shock to me uh, and that we only get 1% of our 8% sales tax and now one and a half because of measure O. I don't think most people, I'm sure most, the vast majority of people don't know that. Um, so, you know, the ballot initiative could be uh, keep Marin County from taking your money <laughs> instead of raising the, you know, yeah, it's raising the tax rate, but don't let Marin County take your, just like they take uh, half your property tax and uh, and most of the sales tax, don't let them take more sales tax. Um, so I think that this uh, positioning thing is very key, uh, uh, but also it's not, it's really about education and education component. So super important. Um, I agree with the mayor, I'm concerned about it not passing, but then again, I also note that we get two bites at the apple if we try to go in the fall. Um, mm -hmm. So if it fails, we can come back with a smaller number uh, or, or do a different strategy, but just, just to remember we do get two bites at the apple. Um, uh, and um, and then I did have one technical question that I wish we could ask HDL to do when they're doing their numbers. I mean, uh, the, the relationship between mm. how much use tax we get from the state of California in is a function of how much sales tax we collect locally. And the formula is extremely complicated uh, as from what I remember from for the HDL presentation. So use tax, of course, is what is paid for online purchases and elsewhere, and it's collected to, it's given to the county or collected by the county and then given to us, or apportioned to the county, and then given to us in proportion to our local sales tax. So I don't know, but it is plausible and it's worth really finding out if we get extraordinarily leveraged, it extraordinary, lever extraordinary leverage by having this high sales tax rate, so much so that it isn't even so much the sales tax on our purchases here in town that is the predominant that is the main benefit it could also be the substantial increase in use tax we get from the california use tax pool so i don't know if that's true but it could be because i remembered how complicated that explanation was and hdl can figure it out and i can't so just putting it another, another way if we get a half set if we get a percentage increase in our sales tax we know that's one percent more sales tax of the yacht sold in the yacht broker and the ice cream cone bought on Bridgeway, but how much more use tax do we get for uh, uh, the statewide use tax pool as a result of that? I'd really like to know the answer to that question. And then since we're giving staff work to do, um, it's in your staff report, you allude to other kinds of fees and taxes. So to the extent we can give any direction, I guess we can't really, but we can ask you to tell the city council how to give you direction on directing staff through consultants or otherwise to do the work on uh, slip fee analysis for our votes, a, a slip tax. Uh, the What could we do to better enforce business license tax? Just to reiterate it for the mayor, who I'm sure certainly said it before, the, whoever's watching the recording, you know, I, I know businesses in town that are here that are have they pay no business license tax because they actually don't know they're supposed to. And HDL, you know, bless their hearts, they, 
they turn a bureaucratic machine on collecting my business license tax. Um, and, but if I didn't, I can fill in any number I want on that form if I'm, about what my revenue is. So how do we know that I'm not lying? Uh, how do we know other people aren't underreporting their revenue? I'm not expecting we're going to catch everyone, but if we have no enforcement, zero. Uh, I suspect we have more, um, we're losing out, on, losing out on more revenue than if we occasionally audited someone. In the previous report, there was supposed to be, that Mike Wagner gave us, there was um, a right to audit the numbers on some of our leases where we were supposed to get a percentage of revenue. Are we actually doing that? I'd like to have some sort of assessment of the enforcement that we're doing. Uh, I know we're doing a parking study downtown that was about, in part, you know, other ways of improving parking um, accessibility for downtown, but really we could be leaving millions of dollars on the table from not running our parking in a professional business setting. I mean, there's an arbitrage between private lots and our public lot, and they're just a hundred yards apart. Uh, that's substantial, like a dollar fifty for a street parking versus eight fifty for a private lot parking. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are many um, parking spots in the business district that don't have meters. So how much money are we missing out on uh, for uh, not running our parking better? And could that, I, I think all this should be part of the puzzle. So I appreciate Measure O is timely because of the deadlines on the budget numbers, but I would like to get the gears of government working on these other revenue sources. Um, and I just need to, I guess I would ask if the mayor agrees to ask staff to bring some sort of if you need our approval, city council, that is approval to do this work, bring something to us to approve. Yeah, yeah I, um, I, I like those ideas. Uh, I would um, maybe frame the request as a, a list um, and help staff prioritize them, uh, right? Because we limited staff resources. So I, I'm very interested in some of the low hanging fruit, like the rev share, um, you know, South Yacht Harbor um, charges, well, they own parcels that are not just over by the Yacht Harbor and they charge for parking in areas where we're charging 25 cents an hour. And so I, is there, I think there's a rev share on that for us. I don't know if as an example, we're collecting. So I think rev shares are low hanging fruit. Um, I think the parking analysis we talked about. So I agree with all that, great ideas. Um, the slip fee thing. The slip fee thing, absolutely. Yeah, I think everything you mentioned, I, I thought was a good idea. And so if, if staff could bring it and then we can have a conversation with council and try to prioritize, uh, I think that would be helpful. Okay. And, the, and also, oh, the asset sale thing. So the, uh, you know, we, we directed, I think, Mike Wagner to work on that, um, but it, it takes on a different dimension if we're actually thinking about the pension, trying to retire part of the pensions and whatnot and looking at all our city assets as, oh, this is, a, it's relevant to finance, which is, just to say it again for the recording, like under Gasby, all our real estate assets are either held at cost or depreciated off of cost. So they're not, we, we have a balance sheet that does not account for our real estate holdings because under Gasby, they're not considered investments. If we invested some of our cash in a REIT, that would be reflected in our financial statements as a investment that would move mark to market and be reported, but not so our uh, real estate holdings. And so that'll never change. That's Gasby. And I don't pretend to suggest changing Gasby, but for making financial decisions, in some respects, that's as if you invested in your 401k for your whole life and you held your 401k at the cost you bought your stocks at. And you're wondering if you can retire at age 60 and and you you think your 401k is worth 400k because that's all you ever put into it. 
but it's actually worth $2 million. And your investment, your retirement decision would vary mightily depending on the outcome of that. So what we think we need to do here in the city of Sausalito is develop a non-GASB, non-GAP assessment of the market value of our real estate holdings. And that can vary because it depends a lot on zoning. So it would have to be current zoning. And then if you upzoned it um, and give us a range. But if we're sitting on $150 million of real estate, that seems like a material uh, financial fact we should know when we're making these other decisions about taxing people's uh, cash flow and how we think about trade-offs in all our infrastructure spending and other big projects in town from from infrastructure in the friendship to undergrounding our utility cables. Yeah, and I would add to that and thank you for bringing it back to the agenda item. So I feel that we're still on the agenda item, um, which <laughs> is, uh, which is, you know, we may be in some situations where we have extremely long-term leases where we're not uh, maximizing the value of that property, whereas a sale of that property could be more beneficial to us over the next 60 to 70 years kind of thing. Um, okay, so in the interest of time, and also because I personally have a hard stop at three, uh, let me recommend that we move to the last item. Is that okay? Uh, uh, Mayor, before you do, uh, so yes. let me make sure I understand what the next steps are. So in my recommendation, you know, I want to bring something to the council and you gave me some wisdom on how it could be shaped as far as, you know, the staff report, you know, maybe half a percent as opposed to 4%, uh, you know, some idea about visitor spend, et cetera. And, you know, what, you know, the pool uh, revenues, the, the use revenue as Councilmember Sobieski called it, impact would be. Uh, so I, I want to do that. I, I hope that that's okay. And then the second thing is, you know, uh, want to, you know, talk to our consultant, FM3, because if you're going to put something on the ballot, you're going to need to, you know, get something shaped pretty quickly and do some survey and education on it. And so in that regard, you would need two consultants. One would be to look at, you know, what the city's uh, sense of our services, the city manager's performance, uh, our facilities, uh, and then, you know, an appetite for other things that might be on the November ballot. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing along with that under city manager authority is someone, if we decide to go out to election that they could help us work through, you know, um, what it is that you do when you have an election, how you inform and educate and make aware uh, and, and structure a ballot measure. And, and that's the city has done in the past and it's pretty standard. And when you do these things and once you do these things and make those decisions, um, you know, you're pretty much done in terms of advocacy or opposition. It's just education, but I need to get us to that point and I need to hire two folks to do that. And I'm not anticipating it costing any more than what you all have asked me to spend. And one of it's already budgeted, which is the, um, the, uh, the FM3 service. Uh, the other one is budgeted in a way with, you know, what we're trying to do with downtown and looking at that vision and seeing if, you know, we're going to actually bring that to ballot at some point and having an election consultant that's been budgeted and I would like permission or I'm just telling you I want to do that and see if there's any feedback to that. You are welcome to bring that to the council. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't. I'm, I'm saying I can do it under city manager authority and I'm saying in order to get these things in a situation where someone can act on them, uh, I need to do that. If I if I wait till the 24th, I guess I could, but I'd rather not. I'd rather just do it. 
Well, my position is this, Chris. Um, full full speed ahead with with Measure O. I think um, anything you need to do on the ballot for that, by all means. Any other ballot measures you you want to add to that? I think the council, the full council, should have a conversation on. That's fair enough, Councilmember Sobieski. Yeah, I mean, we have a couple. Uh, let me just talk very rather within the scope we can within this thing agenda item. I mean, if we've previously authorized you to do work, then then you should do the work. You you were talking about the downtown stuff. Um, I don't remember what we authorized in January in terms of preparing for the ballot stuff. But if that's in there, then I don't see why we wouldn't want to explore it. But I think they are separate issues for sure. And Measure O is the the thing we're talking about here and other finance related things. Um, I am, and I don't know if we can talk about it here I, because it's the cannabis thing. I am, I know we have two potential cannabis measures on the ballot too, and we'd love to see if we could somehow use the survey to gather information on them to see if the city council should take any action prior to the ballot deadline about having any modified cannabis initiative on the ballot. I, I think I have what I need and it's full speed ahead on measure O. Uh, and you know, if you look back on your February or January 11, 2022 agenda, when you approved $185,000 for a series of tasks, uh, one of them involved, you know, a potential ballot measure, bringing in a consultant, you're telling me not to do that. So I won't, but I will bring someone on board that can look at measure O and measure O solely at this time because I think that's the comfort level I'm hearing right now. Well, wait, did you say in January we did approve work on the ballot measure? You, you approved $185,000 for a series of, 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 of chores, uh, project manager, and this was all related to the ferry, ferry landside phase two. So if you don't want to convolute the two, I won't do that. Uh, I would just use my authority to do it and not include that because in my mind, that's a potential long term uh, and you said 10 years um, yeah maybe we could do that but I think that right now I'd like to kind of get a sense of you all that um, you know what my concerns are but you also know that the most important thing for us to do is get a budget adopted by the end of the year and not run into uh, you know the hiccups we ran into last year with having special meetings uh, I, I think I've been very clear that this is a hard time for Sausalito uh, when everyone else around us seems to be doing better there are reasons we are not doing better, and I've laid that out. And so now the answer is, uh, what are this? What are the answers besides cuts? What are the answers besides organizational redevelopment, reorganization? Uh, what are the answers? And the answer to me has to be in part, the council has to dig into its savings account, and I'm showing you what you have and what you might use it for, and what the future might look like for three years. On the revenue side, if I showed you um, something out ten years, I, you know, I'm sure we could model something, but. But as everyone knows, crystal balls get more cloudy the further you go out. Yeah, Chris, I'll just say um, I don't think you're gonna you're hearing any pushback from from myself and Ian on on this. I think um, you're hearing the classic uh, startup funder uh, question: What's the use of funds? So you have you have some of that information in there. I think that anything you could do to to boost that, bolster that, help the community, help the council understand the use of funds would probably be very useful. Yeah, well, I think you know we'll I'll start with what what we always start with, which is the pie chart. And we show you, you know, X number going to police department, X number going to this department, X number going to that department. And those things are informative, but I think they get lost in the fact that there's a lot of information in budget presentations. And so maybe we can just highlight that because the capital improvement program certainly is a component of that. And we can we can slice that out and say, 
out of this $20 million or $40 million pie, this is what you spend on capital improvements or other things that matter so that they're uh, categories that the public can grasp and, and say, yeah, we appreciate that and like that or we don't. Yeah, I think that's right. All right, let me see if our member of the public has any comments. I'm not seeing a hand raised, Pat, but um, please feel free to, there we go. Pat, you've been unmuted and as you shared your video. You can't oh, hear you. Unmute, Pat. You're not unmuted, my friend. Okay. Uh, thank you. Um, I certainly appreciate the city manager's perspective on this, and, and I agree with him. I would urge you, as a member of the public, to keep an eye or to keep, to really pay attention to what what you're spending money on, what the utility curve is, and to who the utility extends. Uh, if you're going to spend money on streets, I'm going to be happy. Um, I think if I'm not happy because you're not doing Monty Mar, someone else is going to be happy because they're living on the street that you're doing. I think it's very important. If you're going to be spending money on uh, looking how, looking at how to eliminate the median down bridgeway uh, for the benefit of bicyclists, I'm not going to be happy. Um, if you're going to spend money on looking how to fix up uh, um, what was her name's house for low-income housing, I'm going to be happy because that's going to benefit a city employee, which will benefit us. So, and lastly, you know, if you're going to be spending money on reducing parking lot revenues by putting in plazas, I think you're going to get a lot of pushback on that one. Certainly from me. Um, so beware of where you're going. Thanks. And I, you know, it, cutting back services, services benefit people who live here. You know, if the city is run well with enforcement and people who understand what the city is like in terms of permitting and whatnot, that's a good city. Um, so anyway, enough said, bye. Thanks, Pat. Okay, uh, three minutes to go. Any final comments? Yes, so I think she's spot on about the transparency of where what our priority projects are and where the money's going to get spent. Like you were saying, Mayor, it's uh, be nice to see uh, as much kind of bucketization as possible. Um, you know, again, the CIP, the CIP list we get is a dense list and uh, it'd be nice to, great to have some themes behind it, improving the quality of our streets. Mm -hmm. You know, probably not going to get around to bearing our cable, underground cables, but that would be a theme if we had that much money bearing our underground cables, um, you know, uh, fixing our storm drains, something like that. Uh, some, some basic themes and a way of measuring our progress against those themes. And then of course, everyone's not gonna agree on different one-off projects and those will be controversial, but the themes I think probably will get a lot of consensus and it'd be, uh, and then would let us fight about the small projects with some focus and while the bigger themes are taken care of. Maybe a budget tool that allows people to balance the budget visually. Yep. Chris, I'm talking about that. Chris, final final comments. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to say that I appreciate uh, Mrs. Zuck bringing that up about infrastructure and you know the fact that you all put 1.2 million out of your savings account back into roads. Uh, I think can't be understated and overstated. I guess is the word. Uh, so so you know going back to you know the three basic things that you know I'm going to harp on is you know our finances our infrastructure, 
and certainly our bandwidth. So uh, you're taking big steps on the infrastructure side by putting $1.2 million there. This is a big, messy, important financial discussion that we need to continue to have. And so I applaud you all for that. And thank you for that. Yeah, thank, thank you for continuing to bring it up to us and explain it in such a clear and concise manner. Well, okay, I think uh, that was really useful. I appreciate everybody's time and we'll go ahead and adjourn. Thanks guys. See you later. Bye.